0: computers crash, we had Windows update, we had just anything and everything that could have happened, happened. Then I was printing out my notes and the printer got jammed. Couldn't get that done. Then we get on stage and we we have all sorts of issues with things that are muted and unmuted and it has been one amazing day, let me tell you that. But I think that it wasn't by chance. Because that is exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. Not being alone and finding our rest, finding our peace in God. It is still really, really boomy. But we're going to be in Psalm 23 tonight. So if you would turn there to Psalm 23. And as you're turning there, if you can go ahead and play that video, please. When I first found out that I was going to be sharing tonight, I was kind of conflicted. wasn't sure where, where we were going to go. Um, but before we actually get into that, just to let you know, Pastor Charlie is okay. Uh, he's just really, really weary right now, just needed a, a, a day off. And so he's at home, resting, recuperating, just being refreshed by the Lord. And he will be back on Saturday. But when I found out that I was going to be sharing tonight... It was just a little, little conflicted about all the different things that God's been speaking to me and just the different ways that, that God has been working in my life. And I saw this video, and, and it almost brought me to tears as I started to, to just think about everything that it was talking about and think about Psalm 23 in a, in a way that, that maybe I've never thought about it before. And so we're going to go ahead and read through it, then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about some things tonight. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again as we prepare to enter into this time of studying your word, and we just pray that you would lead us and guide us in the understanding of it, that it would go beyond just man's understanding, go beyond just man's words, but that it would be truly your heart spoken to ours. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to to just minister to our hearts, to challenge us to be more like you. And Lord, that we would be filled afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. So we give you this time and we ask and pray all of these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, Psalm 23 is one of those things that I think pretty much everybody, even that has never been inside of a church has probably heard before. Psalm 23 tends to be one of the first things that, that those of us who grow up in the church learn. It's right up there with John 3.16 and Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. But it's also one of the things that is most often recited, quoted, printed on anything that's related to a funeral service. And it's something that we think about at the end of someone's life. And we go through it and we read and, and it just makes everything feel a little bit better. Is the best way that it could be described, but as I was reading through it, as I was watching this video, I started to think about it just in terms of, of today, of where our lives are right now, the things that we go through on a day-in-day-out basis, the things that we go through that are most challenging in our own lives, and it began to take on just a very, very personal application for me in my life, where I'm at right now, and so. Tonight I want you to think about just all of the challenges that are in your life right now. It's not a very hard thing to find, right? Like if I asked you about the blessings, sometimes those are harder to count. Sometimes those are harder to find and and come up with a list than all of the challenges, than all of the trials, all the temptations, all the struggles. Those tend to be the things that, that just pop right out. And so thinking about those things and applying Psalm 23 to that area of your life And so the first thing he says is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says the Lord is my shepherd. And that's a picture that we see throughout the word of God, that he is our great shepherd. In John chapter 10 verses 11 through 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. And one of the most powerful parts of that whole passage for me is the understanding that he will never leave. He will never leave. And, and I think that as I was watching that video, that was the thing that really, really kept jumping out. And it was something that, that popped up throughout the video, that I am not alone that I am not alone, that no matter what might happen in this life, no matter what challenges might come, you know, we we like to say it it's one of those pithy phrases that God is still God and God is still on the throne, but it is very, very true that God is still who he says he is, that that doesn't change based on our circumstances, that no matter what challenges we might be going through, whether they were of our own making or they were just something that was set there by the enemy, something that was allowed by God, whatever the case might be, Whatever we go through, God is still with us. God has never left us or forsaken us. And he says that a hireling, someone who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, he sees the trouble coming, sees the challenges, and he leaves the sheep. And he flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. But he says, that's not who I am. That is not who I am to you. And that is a a tremendous promise that we have from God that he will never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to be there through thick and thin. One of the things that, that you go through as you read through the book of Ephesians, you see how Paul begins to talk about marriage. He begins to talk about a husband and a wife and what that relationship looks like. But beyond that, he says that he's speaking about what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the, the, the husband, if you will, and the, the church is his bride. And so he begins to talk about all these different things. And that's where we get a lot of our marriage vows. And for those of you that have been married for a while, you might have forgotten what those were. But a lot of those things were applicable because they were rooted in what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be like. And how he relates to us. And one of those things that we talk about all the time... For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. That means that no matter what might come, that we're going to be there together. And that was Jesus' promise to the disciples. And that's Jesus' promise to us that he is a good shepherd and that he gives his life for the sheep. And he proved it. He already did it. He gave his life for us. He paid the price for all of our sins. And for that, he is a good shepherd. But then it says, I shall not want It's not enough for Jesus just that that he died on the cross for our sins. It's not enough for him that he just told us he would be with us. But he promises that he will grant to us everything necessary for this life. Everything necessary for this life. That we will be lacking nothing. It says that I shall not want. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, it says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so he's going through, he's asking them all these questions, he's telling them about all these things. Is not life more than just this? You don't have to worry about all of these things because life is so much more than that. And he's not saying that it's something that you should just not care about. He's not saying that you should just starve yourself. He's not saying that you shouldn't go out and work. You shouldn't go out and get a job. Because later on in the the epistles, you see that we should be doing those things. We should be taking care of our households. We should be taking care of ourselves. But he says that that should not be the most dominant part of your life. That should not be the thing that keeps you up at night. Because then it gets on in verse 27 and he says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit? Which one of you by worrying about it, worrying about how you're going to do this, how you're going to do that, allowing it to consume your life, which one of you by worrying about that is going to change it? You know, have you ever stopped to think about that? All the worries that we have in our lives, all the things that that keep us up at night, all the ways that we just dwell upon those things, did it really change anything? The only time I would suggest to you that it ever changes things is when it changes things for the worse. It never ever changes things for the better. All it does is, if anything, it gets us in a worse mood and it makes us feel even worse about whatever the situation is. And so he's saying... What is worrying going to do? How is that going to change anything? He says, Why do you worry about clothing in verse 28? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And that is where it really comes down to. He's not saying don't worry about it because they're not necessities. Don't worry about it because they're not needed. Don't worry about it because you're going to go without all these things. He's saying don't worry about these things because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Your heavenly father, the great provider, he knows that you need all these things. And so he says, instead of focusing on all these things, in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. To seek first, above all of this stuff, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so he's saying to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to do the things that we ought to be doing to get closer to God, to get closer to the Lord. Because the closer that we get to God, the easier it is for us to trust him for everything that concerns us today. And so he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, he's not saying all these things includes a Ferrari and all these things includes a million dollars and all these things includes a mansion or all the other things that we could think of materialistically. But he says all these things, all your needs, all these things shall be taken care of. All these things will be added unto you. And then he closes it by saying don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow, tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, we started by, by just a, a brief woe is me session about all the things that have happened today in the, the last hour and a half. I mean, those are all things that, you know, they're just troubles. They're challenges. They're things that, that on a normal day never happen. Things that, that we couldn't even think about happening because they just don't. They just don't ever happen. And so why are we going to worry about tomorrow when sufficient for the day is all of its own troubles? Sufficient for the day is all of its own troubles. And not only that, we are trusting, we are placing our hope, we are placing our faith, finding our strength, finding our comfort in the great provider, Jehovah Jireh. For the Lord God, in Psalm 8411, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he uphold from those who walk uprightly. And as I was reading through a commentary, one of the things that he was talking about is all the things in your life that you have, sometimes you feel like that's not enough. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because we've all been there. There's been a time, there's been an instance at least once Where we have felt that there was something that we needed that God just had not provided yet. Something that we desired. For many of us, before we were married, it was a spouse. For many of us, after we were married, but before we became parents, it was children. For some of you, it was a job. For some of you, it was a house. Whatever it is, there has been a a time in our lives where there has been something that we felt God has withheld from us. And we may not say it quite like that. We may not even pray it quite like that. But that's really how we felt, is that there was something, that that it was a good thing, and God was withholding it from us. And yet, here in Psalm 84, 11, it says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So how are we supposed to reconcile that with this need or this longing that we had that was not being answered by God? And the only thing that I could come up with was something that that this one commentary put He says that sometimes God is withholding these things not because they're not good, but because they're not good right now. Because they're not good right now. Because he has promised that he will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. And so we need to trust in the timing of God's work. Trust in the timing of the plan that he has set in place. In James 1.17, it says every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And I've shared with, with you all before that when he talks about this, that it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, that means that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that his desires for us and for our lives have not changed. This is not something that when we wake up one day, God's going to change his mind and say, you know what, yesterday I wanted this for you, today I don't want this for you. God's desires for us remain the same. Now, there are seasons, there are changes that take place in our lives, but God's main desires for us remain the same. The first one is obviously that we would come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the second one, following closely after that, is that we would have a walking, breathing, breathing, living relationship with him. That it would be more than just words that we said sometime back in the past, but that it would be something that impacts our lives day in and day out, moment by moment, that we are being challenged to be holy because he who calls us is holy. And that's the third thing that he desires for us is for us to be holy. He knows that we're imperfect. He knew it before he called us, he knows it right now, and he knows that it's, that's the way it's going to be in the future, because he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So he knows what he's working with. He knows who he's called, it says that he's a great shepherd, and he knows all who are his. He knows exactly who he called and what he's getting with us. But he still desires for us to be improved, to be refined. The best way that I could express it to you is the way I said, to be challenged, to be holy. That we would take that as a personal challenge, a personal exhortation every day to be holier than we were the day before. Not just for the sake of being holy, but to be able to draw closer to the Lord. Because we know throughout the word of God that every time there is sin in our lives, that that sin clouds us from being able to hear clearly from the Lord. It doesn't mean that once you become a child of God that the sin now takes you out of that and then you've got to get back in and then you get out and you get back in. That's not the way salvation works. You know, it, it's one of those things that, that you are still a child of God, but there's that blockage in that relationship. And sometimes it's that blockage in the relationship that allows all of the trials and the struggles and the temptations to grow bigger. Because we have turned aside. We're not watching For what the Lord is trying to do. But he says that his his desire for us is to not withhold any good thing. And that he is a great provider. All the way back in Genesis chapter 22. This is a, a fairly lengthy passage. But this is where we get Jehovah Jireh from. This is where we get God our provider or the Lord will provide. It's the one and only place that we see it. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham... And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. And so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And so you see here in this story, something that most of us have heard before. Abraham is being tested. That's where it all starts. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. After Abraham has already had this amazing experience with the Lord. He's already been spoken to by God. Later on in the, the epistles, we see that, that Abraham was called the friend of God. You know, that Abraham really, really was close to God. And yet, in the middle of this closeness, in the middle of this relationship, where he's growing to know God better, he's growing to be holier, more righteous, he's growing to be more like God, that in the midst of this relationship, it says, now it came to pass, after these things, God tested Abraham. Sometimes the things that have been withheld are a challenge because they're a test. They're a test that God has allowed in our lives. And that's what was taking place here. And so Abraham is told to take his son Isaac and to go up and he's going to offer this sacrifice, this burnt offering. And Abraham understands. Abraham knows what he's being asked to do. He says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer, them there, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, that is just amazing. That is absolutely amazing. There are all sorts of different ways to describe that. There have been all sorts of different stories that people have come up with to describe what, it, what that would feel like for us nowadays. But I don't think that any of us could really fully grasp that. But Abraham got it, he understood, and so he rises up early. That was the first thing, he rose early. He didn't wait, he didn't dilly-dally around, he rose up early and he got started with what God had spoken to him. And so he goes up and he's fully prepared to do it. He says that, that he's, he's going to go up with his son and he's going to offer the sacrifice. And so Isaac asks him, but where, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? We have the wood, we have the fire, we have all these things, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, we don't know if Abraham fully grasped what was about to happen. We don't know if Abraham really knew that God was going to stop him. I would suggest to you that he didn't because of what we see in a little bit. But whatever the case might be, Abraham trusted implicitly in God. Trusted implicitly in God. This was the one thing... Above everything else in his life that Abraham had been asking for. The one thing that had been withheld from him was an heir. Someone that would carry on his name. And God had already promised that there was going to be one. God had promised that his descendants would outnumber the the stars. And so when he is now called to offer up his only son... The one thing that God had withheld that had now been provided for him, he didn't ask questions. He gave it up. And that is the the first part of it for us in this passage. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And when I do want, I have to check why I want. I have to check if what I want is really a good thing. And I have to check if what I want has gotten in the way of what God wants for me. But he says in verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there, and he placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, literally Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the lesson from this story is not that God is going to ask you to lay something down and then he's not going to make you give it up. The lesson from this story is that when God asks us to lay something down, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be faithful to him in deed more than just in word? We all talk a, a real big game. We all say that we would be willing to do everything. I, I would die for Jesus. We even say, well, I, I would live for Jesus. I will do all of these things. But then he says, okay, well, will you let this thing go? Well, God, I'll do anything else, but I I can't really lay that particular thing down. That has been the one thing outside of you that I've desired my whole life. That is the one thing that, that I felt had been withheld from me, and now that you've given it to me, you're asking me to give it up. How can that possibly be the way that you want to work this thing? Do we have the trust? As Jesus said, you know, all of these things we worry about, Do we trust in God for those things? Because he knows all of our needs. He knows all of our needs and he has promised to provide for every need. So that's the first thing, that the Lord is my shepherd and that I shall not want. And then he gets to the next part, that he makes me to lie down. He makes me to lie down. The word there is more of a forcibly making me to lie down. It's not he allows me. To find rest. It's not that he grants me the, the privilege or the opportunity. It's more of a forcibly causing you to lie down and to rest. Forcibly causing you to lie down and to rest. And the picture is uh, that I never knew until today. But apparently, sometimes sheep just get so scattered and crazy and, and they're, they're just basically losing their minds. And they need to To just be forcibly pushed down so that they can rest. And so that's what he's describing here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He forces me to lie down. Why would that be the case? Because we are all so busy. We are all so busy. And there are mostly good reasons that we all have them. You know, if somebody says, well, you know, why, why haven't you had time to do this? Whatever that might be. Why haven't you had time, more time to spend with the kids? Why haven't you had more time to, to devote to ministry at church? Why haven't you had more time to, to do better at your job? Why haven't you had more time to study? Whatever the case might be, why haven't you had more time? And what's the, the response for all of us? You know, I just haven't had time. Haven't gotten around to it. And why haven't you cleaned this? Why haven't you built that? Why haven't you done whatever it is? You know what, there's just not enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough days in the week. We are all so busy all the time. And sometimes God has to get past all of that busyness so that he can get to us, so that he can get our attention, so that we can hear him, so that we can be restored, so that we can be refreshed, so that we can find that rest. And so he makes, to me, makes me to lie down. And how, how does he do that? Some of the most obvious things are, sometimes I can tell you from personal experience, I've just been going, 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 and it just seems like there's no end in sight, and, and part of me doesn't want there to be an end in sight, because I, I just feel like I'm accomplishing so much, and, and things are going well, and we're doing all these great things in whatever area it is. We're doing all these great things in, in our family, we're doing all these great things in ministry at the church, we're doing all these great things in whatever it is and you just want to go you want to keep going you feel like you're on a roll and then then what happens to me is i get sick people are like man you are always sick and i know but that's part of it is because god has to make me to rest and sometimes that's the only way that i will and a couple of weeks ago it was probably the one of the busiest that i've been in a while Just constantly nonstop doing something. It was like every night we had something to do. Every day there were all of these things that that had to be accomplished. All this stuff was going on. And then I was rushing around. And it it was actually on our anniversary. And, And my wife was teaching women's study that night. And so I had the kids, and I was taking care of them while she studied and prepared. And then we went home, and, and I get all the kids loaded up. They took a nap. I, I was being a real good dad. Like, I, was, I did everything. Like, they, they ate. They were clean. Like, they took a nap. I, I got all the things checked off. Get them all in the car. Literally buckle my one-year-old into the car. And as soon as the second buckle is latched, it was like the exorcist. Like, just all this stuff flies out of her mouth. I mean, it was just insane. I have not seen a one-year-old throw up that much. It was on me, it was on the car, it was on her. I, I, I mean, it must have been a crazy, crazy thing to see because I had to undo, for those of you that know about child safety seats, there's all these latches and all this stuff. So I had to unhook that and I just felt like I couldn't lift her up without getting everything else dirty. So here I am picking up this whole car seat with my child inside of it, and I'm walking in the house with it. And the other two kids are like, what happened? What happened? What do you mean what happened? You guys can see what's going on. And so that began 10 days of my family passing around probably the worst stomach sickness that I've ever seen in my life. It got so bad that the next night I, I was in pain, like literally in pain, could not move without feeling just pain. And it was probably one of the most restful days the following day that I've had in a long time. And I felt so much better. I felt so refreshed coming back after taking two days off. Even, and I'll tell you, I'll be honest, that first day I was miserable. The second day was the day that was really restful. And I woke up that morning, took a shower, got dressed. My wife got home from dropping off the kids at school. And she saw me, and it was like a look of condemnation. Not even conviction. It was just condemnation. Where do you think you're going? Well, I feel better. I'm going to work. What are you thinking? And, you know, we we went down that road, and it was probably one of the wisest things that she could have said to me. Because I needed that day. I needed that day not just physically, but I needed that day emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And God made me to lie down. He made me to lie down. Because sometimes that is the only way that it can happen, is for us to be forcibly made to lie down. And so then he continues on here. He, he goes through all of these things. And, and then he says, he leads me by still waters into the path of righteousness. He restores my soul and then he leads me beside the still waters into the path of righteousness. The only way to get to those still waters a lot of times is to go through the rippled waters to go through the waves, to go through the challenges. Revival, restoration, rest, encouragement, growth. All of these things often come after tragedy, after some kind of a challenge. And tragedy doesn't just mean losing something amazing like a job or a person or, or whatever. Sometimes it could be as simple as losing your health for a day. But whatever tra- tragedy happens, sometimes those are the best places for God to be able to speak to us because we are now actively looking for him, right? I mean, obviously for those of us that know the Lord, but even those outside of the church, those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who will honestly tell you, you know what, I don't really believe in God, and then something awful happens, and what's the first thing that they do? Hey, you know, can you pray for me because I'm going through this time in my life? Because immediately, when everything hits the fan, when it is absolutely at its worst for us in our lives, that's the closest that we get to just being completely sold out for Jesus Christ. It's a sad thing to say, but it's very, very truthful for most of us. You know, we can be on fire and we do a lot of great things and and we spend time with the Lord and, and everything's going great, but some of the closest times that we have had with the Lord, some of the most profound things that God has ever shared with us, have happened right in the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of a challenge. There's a story that's, that's repeated a lot about a, a man named Jeremy Lamphere. Is back in the 1800s. He's a man that lived in the 1800s. He made an impact on New York City. He he was a man that had gone to church. He used to sing in the choir, did all these things, but he didn't really know Jesus Christ. He's a single guy. And eventually what what began to happen is as he was singing in this, this tabernacle choir, that God actually got a hold of his heart, changed his life. And so he ends up coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And immediately upon that happening for him, his whole life changed, and so he, he ends up taking this job at a Dutch Reformed church in Manhattan to oversee a visitation program, and he would spend entire days just going through the city, visiting church members, witnessing in the city streets, just doing anything and everything that he could to minister to those that were in the kingdom and to bring others into it. And so he did all of these things, but he felt so weary, Just so tired. The work depleted him spiritually. But he found that he was recharged if he could spend just one hour at noon in prayer. And that if he could get that time set aside every day, that he would spend an hour in prayer at noon, that everything seemed to go so much better. And so even despite all of that, everything still seemed to be kind of fruitless in the ministry. He felt like he wasn't bringing people to know the Lord. And so it it says that it occurred to him that if prayer were vital to himself... Perhaps others would benefit too, and so he obtained a room on Fulton Street, and he printed 20,000 flyers, setting the first meeting for noon on Wednesday, the 23rd of September, 1857. He said, if ever there was a time to pray, this was it. Americans were fearing that a civil war was coming. Many were disillusioned with the church because William Miller and others had preached the end of the world in the 1840s, and he knelt to pray alone. He passed out 20,000 flyers, and he knelt to pray alone. He started praying at 12 and nobody was there. His flyer, it seemed, had been dismissed by all who saw it. For half an hour, he remained praying in solitude. And then a man showed up and without a word knelt beside him. And then another, and by 1 p.m., 10 knees were on the floor beside Lamphere. The following week, several more men appeared, and by October, Lamphere had to get a larger building. On the 7th of October, he had 40 businessmen as prayer partners, and they asked to meet daily. And the timing could not have been more perfect. On the 10th of October, 1857, financial panic struck America. Banks folded, railroads went bankrupt, factories closed, and unemployment skyrocketed. Desperate people turned to prayer, and such a great number of people flocked to churches that soon many places of worship around the city were forced to open their sanctuaries at noon and evening for prayer. A reporter who rushed from sanctuary to sanctuary one noon counted over 6,000 people praying. And he was not able to visit every meeting place. Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, and other large cities began noon prayer meetings. And then the YMCA's also held prayer meetings wherever its branches had formed. The result was labeled America's third great awakening. People began to inquire how they might be saved. As many as a million people were converted or renewed in the revival that followed. Churches that had been dying filled anew with worshipers. And the revival leapt around the world. Primarily in regions occupied or influenced by the British Empire, but also on the European continent. This one man, who, in the midst of of what would be probably a, a minor struggle in many of our eyes, just difficulty at work, he felt the need to pray. And he felt that prayer was so impactful in his life that he wanted to to impact the lives of others. And so he wanted to open that opportunity up for everyone else. And so he starts doing that, and he could have been easily discouraged because it did not go well to start. But he continued to do it, and then God began to bring about this tremendous revival in the wake of tremendous tragedy. The third great revival, the great awakening in America took place right after the stock market crashed in the 1800s. You know, I can remember on 9-11, just the the things that were taking place in, in this country and the, the revival, if you will, that was taking place. I remember showing up to church that night. It was not a church night. It was not a night that we were going to meet to do anything. And a couple of friends and I had asked if we could come and, and we could pray. And to be perfectly honest, most of us were not really spiritually where we needed to be. We just knew that that was something that we should do. And so we showed up, and it was just going to be us. And it blew me away because we opened the doors, and there were all these people. Some people that that didn't even come to this church that showed up to pray. And for, for months, churches were packed. But then what happened? Tragedy gave way to fortune. Tragedy gave way to fortune, and, and all those things were gone, and we left the side of God. Not all of us, but, but many in the church left the side of God. And so we missed out on that last part, that he leads me by still waters into the path of righteousness. Because the first part is that restoration, that refreshing that takes place, that renewal, that revival, if you will of getting us back to where we should be, of being able to speak to us so clearly and so closely, and we are so intimate with the Lord that we can hear everything that he wants from us. But then there has to be a continual motion in that. We have to continue to desire to follow after him, to be led into the path of righteousness. It says he leads me by still waters into the path of righteousness. He doesn't just want to revive us. He doesn't just want to have to work with something that keeps dying over and over again. He doesn't want to have to just forcibly make us to lie down so we can rest. He wants to lead us and guide us in his way. He wants to lead us by still waters into the path of righteousness. And then we get into this last section, which I would consider to be God's protection and guidance. It's a carryover from this into the paths of righteousness. And and then he starts talking about the shadow of death. though I walk through the the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even in the midst of, of what we would consider to be the greatest challenge in our lives, be death, even in the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. You know, that's that's a big one to talk about. There are many who have given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many others that have given their lives for others in one way or another. But he says that even in the midst of that, even in the face of that greatest obstacle to mankind, that he will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's writing to the church and he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, talking about this life, about who we are, this, this physical body, this, this corruptible mind. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so he says that this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. And that at that time, that's when everything shall be brought to pass that says death is swallowed up in victory. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? That even that is not a victory for the enemy, that that is still a victory for God if we've given our lives over to him. And that we can... Firmly face that, that we can stand, as he would close that out, stand and be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, even unto death, even unto the very end. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then those three things, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, I think that those things tie in very, very clearly to Psalm 23. To be steadfast. To be led by the still waters into the path of righteousness. To be steadfast and immovable in those things. That the only thing, the only one who can move us is God. That the only thing that should be able to move us in this life is God. Now God working through someone, God working through a situation, God working through, through a challenge. Maybe God's speaking to you directly. Whatever it is, but the one person in this life that should have that power to move us is God. And everything else we should remain immovable. And if we can do those things, if we can remain steadfast then we will be able to always abound in the work of the Lord because we are walking in the path of righteousness. And and I've shared this before. It's it's almost like a, a perforated edge. It's like that straight edged cut that, that we didn't have to work for. You know, how many... I'm sure most of us in here had to work with spiral notebooks at one point or another. And I remember I had teachers that actually would not accept papers if they had what they would call the little stringies on the end. Because if you ripped it out of the spiral notebook and it didn't have the perforated edge, you had all this stuff and then they would get upset. It gets caught in all the papers and all the whatever. They didn't want to accept it. And it was a big deal for them. It was a big deal for me because it affected my grade because sometimes I just didn't plan ahead and that was all I had. And so you would come up with all these different ways that you could get rid of the little stringy things. You know, you start, like, folding it one way, folding it back the other way, using a pencil, doing all these things, just trying to rip it up, trying to get that straight edge. And then somebody came out with this amazing idea. Why not perforate those edges? Why not let them, let these kids who are all failing because of these edges, why not give them an opportunity to get the grades they deserve? And so somebody came out with these perforated edges. And so you rip it. And it's nice and smooth. It's a clean edge. And that is the way that I envision everything with the Lord. Is that God didn't leave all the squiggly edges for us. God said, look, if you will just follow me. If you will keep your eyes on me. If you will listen to the things that I'm telling you. I'm going to lead you in the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you in a way that you will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. It's, it's almost not even work. I mean, it just naturally is supposed to happen. It's the way worship is supposed to be. Worship is not supposed to be work. It's not supposed to be a challenge. It should just happen because we are walking with the Lord, because we are walking beside the still waters in the path of righteousness. But then he says, "The rod and thy staff will comfort me, and, and that he will prepare a table before our enemies, to allow us to actually sit and to enjoy a meal. In the face of our enemies. It's like saying that the enemy is there. This overwhelming obstacle, this overwhelming odds are in your face. And that's all that, that anybody who didn't trust in the Lord would be able to see. And yet, God gives you rest and gives you peace right in the midst of it, just right there, not even taking you out of it. It doesn't say that God removes you from your enemies, He says He prepares a table, prepares a place. In the midst, in front of enemies, in the midst of that challenge, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that tragedy, in the midst of that overwhelming obstacle that you can't see around, that right there, that's where God wants to meet you with that rest. That God wants to meet you with that joy. My brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations. He's not, James isn't saying, you know, you should just be stoked that God wants to challenge you today. Like, that's not what he's saying. You should be stoked that the computer crashed. You should be stoked that the printer decided not to print. You should be stoked that all of the the technology in the building seemed like it was possessed today. You should be stoked. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you should be stoked because I am still God, I'm still on the throne. And I'm going to do something amazing in spite of and around all of those things. And that's what God desires to do in our lives. He desires to do amazing things. Things that are amazing. Like that's a word that we throw around sometimes. We, we throw around words like awesome and amazing. But God truly wants to do things that are awesome and amazing. Things that you couldn't even describe. You couldn't even have fathomed in your mind before they happened. Because that's who God is, and that's who he is to us. And that's who we are to him. There's a song, we're we're almost to the end here, and there's a song that we're going to sing in closing that I've come to really, really appreciate. It's called Good, Good Father. Because that's who you are. I mean, that is just so profoundly powerful. That that is who he is. Above all of these things, I mean, he is awesome, he's amazing, he does tremendous things. There is nothing that can match the awesome might and power of God. There is none that can match his holiness, his righteousness. But there is none that can match his grace. There is none that can match his mercy. There is none that can match his love for you and for I. There is none that can match those things. That's who he is. That's who he desires for us to see him as. And he wants to be able to do all these things. He wants to be able to fill us with his power. He, He begins to wrap it up here and he talks about anointing my head with oil. My cup runneth over to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what that picture is. Every time you see anointing oil in the, in the Bible, it's talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Having that, that power being poured out upon you. In Luke twenty-four forty-nine, it says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 28, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And so he goes through this this whole description of, of who the Holy Spirit is. In great simplicity and yet also at the same time in great detail. He says the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. There are a lot of things that we don't know. There are a lot of things that we don't know. And think about it in, in this whole understanding, this whole perspective of a good, good father. You know, my kids, they're, they're one, three, and five. It doesn't matter what the question is. It doesn't matter what might be taking place in life. It doesn't matter if we're watching a movie that none of us have ever seen before. Dad must know the answer. And when I don't, it is just a mind-blowing thing for them. What do you mean you don't know, Dad? You know everything. No, I don't know everything. I really don't. But, but that's the, the perception. That's the mentality that, that we have about our parents, especially growing up. But it's actually true with our Heavenly Father. That he knows everything. He knows everything. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to teach us everything. Everything that concerns us in this life He has sent the Holy Spirit to be able to teach us. That if we will just walk beside him in the path of righteousness, that our cup will run it over. That our lives will just abound in great things. Great things from God. Because God desires good things. I can't tell you what those good things are for you. God knows and God wants to share those things with you. He wants to let you know. And he desires to do all these things. He desires to teach you all things. He desires to bring to remembrance all the things that God has already said, all the things that he's challenged us to, all the things that he's promised to us. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Kind of wraps up everything in Psalm 23. Is that that is really what God is trying to get across as David is writing this psalm, is that we are never alone. We are never alone. And we have no reason to be afraid. We have no reason to be afraid. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what challenges, what obstacles lie in our way. If we can just keep our eyes set and focused upon God, God's got that figured out. God already knows how all those things are going to happen. God is not going to be surprised. He's not going to be shocked. He's not even going to be challenged. All of these things are nothing to God. And so he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world does do I give. Let not your heart be troubled. He says, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. My Father is greater than I. And coming back to Psalm 23 we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like if all the other things that we've talked about tonight didn't get you to that place, that should be the, like the tipping point, the thing that just sends you over the edge, that you have the opportunity, the privilege to be able to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to know that there is something so much greater than this life after this life. To know that, you know, another one of those pithy phrases... That for those of us that know Jesus, this life, however awful it gets, that's as bad as things could ever be. But if you don't know Jesus, this life is as good as it's ever going to get for you. God desires good things, and those things, those good things that he desires start with salvation. That's the first thing that he desires. He desires for us to know him as Lord and Savior. The second thing like we talked about, like we started with, is to be able to have a living, breathing, walking relationship with him. That's the way I describe it. It's something that that has to be a part of our day-to-day life, and really it has to be a part of our moment-by-moment life. Now, yes, there are going to be times that we're going to slip up. There are going to be times we're going to fail. There are going to be times that we fall. But we should desire to get back as soon as possible to walking in the path of righteousness to be walking with Jesus beside those still waters. And then the last thing is that he desires to empower us, to fill us with his Holy Spirit, that we would be able to abound still more and more in the work of the Lord, that we would be able to impact the lives of those around us and that they would be challenged, that they would be comforted, that they would be exhorted, that they would be forgiven, that they would be shown grace, that they would be shown mercy, that they would be taught holiness, that they would be taught righteousness, that all of these things would be exhibited in us, not because of us, but because of he who lives inside of us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for bringing us into this place tonight. Lord, we thank you for preparing our hearts to hear your word, and and Lord, for the work that you're doing in us. We pray that we would always be sold out for you that we would truly desire to seek you out for every decision for every choice for every challenge lord that there would not be a single thing that we would not seek your wisdom on and lord we pray tonight that that as we leave this place that you would as you promised allow your holy spirit to bring to our remembrance all the things that you have spoken lord that in the midst of whatever challenges whatever struggles we might go through the things that we might, might not be going through now, but the things that will happen, that are sure to happen in this life. Lord, we pray that all of these things would be given over to you and that you would have your perfect work and will accomplished in us and through us. And that in the midst of all of it, in the midst of our enemies, Lord, that you would grant us that rest, that you would grant us that peace. We ask and pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.